Hi, I'm Hall of Fame sportscaster Leslie Visser. I was just honored as the first woman to win the Sports Emmy Lifetime Achievement, so I've known for decades about challenging the norm. This month, In Conversation with Leslie Visser, we'll take a deeper look into Title IX, the 37 words that changed society. Fifty years ago, on June 23, 1972, the passage of Title IX radically altered sports in this country ensuring that women would no longer be discriminated against in any federally funded educational program. In the early 1970s, I was on a high school basketball team where only two of us, called Rovers, could cross half court. Yes, only two of the then six players could cross half court. It was thought that too much exertion would damage a young girl's heart. By the mid-70s, I both marched for and wrote about Title IX. Ironically, the word sports does not appear anywhere in the amendment, but the landmark legislation recognized that gender equity in education was a civil right, and it, of course, included sports. This month on In Conversation, we'll hear from some of the beneficiaries, now icons, of Title IX. People like Cheryl Miller, Julie Foudy, Dominique Dawes, Val Ackerman, and Jessica Mendoza. I'm old friends with all of them. I hope you'll join us. In 1984, when I was covering basketball, both men's and women's, in the Olympics in Los Angeles, Cheryl Miller told me a story. Growing up, she said, she would hide in the bushes while her brother Reggie arranged for pickup games for $5. When the two opponents would ask, where's your partner? Cheryl would come out from behind the bushes. They never lost. And Cheryl, the dominant, game-changing Hall of Famer, hardly ever, ever lost. Hello, Cheryl. Too long. First of all, girlfriend, I am so proud of you. And how do you keep getting younger? Give me your secret. I need the beauty secrets. You look gorgeous. Lighting, lighting and MAC lipstick. Where you been? Oh, MAC, I love. <laughs> MAC. I got you on MAC. I love that. But no, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I found that story from uh, the Boston Globe when I was there at the Globe. And I found that story from whatever that is 10,000 years ago. But tell me this, what are your strongest memories of those Olympics? Besides that you led the team, were the star. I never looked at it like that. First of all, I was blessed to have a great coach in Pat Summit. Unbelievable female version of Bobby Knight, drill sergeant. But it was interesting because we had competed and played against, you know, Tennessee and whatnot. And we ended up being really good friends, like good friends. Cause she thought, you know, her words, you're a hot dog. Why can't you just like make a basket? What's with all the celebration? And I'm like, that's just, that's just me. And she figured out it was just me. That's just how, you know, that's how I played. And Wow. And to play it in my backyard with my family, to be able, oh, in the forum? I mean, it, it was it was magical. It was absolutely magical. It was, of course, the Russian uh, payback time that they didn't show up. Was part of you, uh, I don't know, did you wish they'd been there? Cheated. I felt cheated. No, no, no doubt about it. Because we had... We had been playing against them where we knew 
that we were going to kick that. Yeah, we were going to get that Soviet, you know, Soviet butt. Um, and um, yeah, I felt I felt cheated. I understood why this happened, but it never sat well with me because you want you want to play the very best, and we were the best. They were the best, and we were about to find out. You know, I'll, I will butcher this, but um, of course, we all remember Aljano Semjanova. She she was the like the seven foot wonder, and I thought she was she was brilliant. But I was I was looking forward to climbing that ladder and dunking on her. Yeah, did you <laughs> did you feel? I mean, in the the world championships the year before in 83 you guys played very very well against the soviets so this was going to be the moment but for people who don't remember her can you say what a force a seven foot two woman she weighed close to 300 pounds and she she almost never lost no no there's no question i mean it was um from what ann myers used to like to tell me it was the soviet union the women's basketball team a 50-year run a 50-year run where no one had beaten them, especially from, from the U.S. So here comes our time, and we play them, you know, during, you know, USA basketball, and, you know, we battle them. We won some games where we're now, we're kind of strutting our stuff, Les. We're strutting our stuff. We're like, okay, we're there. And, yeah, the, the cards just didn't fall in our, in our lap. It was so, yeah, it was so exciting. I think those world championships were just a couple of points. But tell me, um, really, we did not play well against the Russians until you came along. And looking back on it, like it isn't you, but, you know, you controlled the middle. You could pass. You could steal. You could shoot. You could block. You could, uh, you were a great assist person. What do you think about your game that had evolved to that point where we were ready to challenge the Soviets? Well, my dad was always a firm believer. Um, you didn't play just a power forward or a center or a point guard. If you were really good and if you were really great, you played all five. And that's how we were taught. And growing up in our family with Reggie and everything else, um, we learned how to play with our back to the basket or taking somebody off the dribble or making that extra pass. And that was the one thing I love to pass. And better yet, I love to play defense because if I was having an off night, my dad used to say, if your shot's not falling, make sure you make it miserable for everybody else. And defensively, <laughs> That was the mindset. That was the mindset. You certainly made it miserable. We've all seen the documentaries and all the shows of you with Reggie. But was it, um, I don't know, was it a loving rivalry? Or I think you told me once that you thought he talked too much. You were trying to make him just be quiet. He never shut up. He still has a shut up. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the one thing about, um, I never understood until my senior, my junior senior year at USC, why Reggie did that? Because Reggie was, he was a mental assassin. Like the more he talked and got into his competitor's head, like Reggie had already done his homework. Okay, uh, this guard likes to do this. This forward can only step back or, you know, defensively, 
you know, he's amnesia. I mean, he would, Reggie would know from beginning to end. That's why he did that. And I was like, oh, that's really smart. Didn't know you were smart like that. <laughs> but didn't it drive you crazy to want to beat him that much more? Well, see, that's the, that's, that's the difference that people, re- oh, well, I should say, people don't realize I would hurt Reggie. mean that means that means if he kept chirping i would score and punch score and punch (laughs) so but that's the wonderful thing about our relationship our family's relationship is um my dad was a firm believer you don't start a fight but you end the fight and never allow anyone else outside the family to put their you know, put their hands on your brother or sister. So that's that's how we roll. That's how we roll. Was it in Seinfeld? Remember when Elaine said um, Cheryl Miller has a brother who plays basketball? <laughs> <laughs> it was like the greatest. It was the greatest. But, you know, I think a lot of people thought he was so much younger than you. But when he was at UCLA, wasn't he just maybe one, really one year behind you? Yeah. One year, one year and maybe a little pocket change. And that that was it. But that was always. That was always interesting to me is like all of a sudden it was Cheryl Miller. Oh, she had a younger brother. And I'm like, he's just a year behind me <laughs> right. and most people don't most people don't realize it was my my freshman year coming home for uh christmas and when i left reggie was 5 10 maybe 5 11 and i was still kicking the snot out of him so i get home for christmas and i'm like come on reggie let's go outside let's play come on come on wake up and he stood up and he was six six. Yeah, wake like, up. What, the heck? <laughs> what you been eating, brother? What you been eating? <laughs> and it, for me, it seemed like overnight, but he was he was six seven. And I was like, Are you kidding me? Seriously, he grew like nine inches. And I six seven. And I went past him, Leslie, and I was like feeling my groove. And I went to lay the ball up and he pinned it. He pinned it. And I was like, okay. okay. Hey, anybody up for a scrabble? Yeah. What? <laughs> well, he's going to be your guy for all the rest of your lifetime pickup games. That is the guy. He, he, he was, he's the man. He was the man. Uh, it's so beautiful. Everyone always says that, you know, your parents, I, I hope you thank them daily. They raised such polite yet competitive i i don't what do you think the secret of their parenting was well thank goodness mom was a registered nurse which came in handy <laughs> <laughs> that's in the backyard yeah in the backyard whatever. but it was um we would almost all of us and i have three brothers saul jr daryl red my younger sister tammy the baby um but it became so competitive that Monopoly was almost banned from the household. It was like combat for Monopoly? Exactly. <laughs> and don't let somebody, because it was like cash. Give me the cash on boardwalk. Right. <laughs> and, but it was like, it could be 
It could be spades. It could be um, any type of card go or, or, or trouble. The trouble game used to be trouble for us because if you could sit up there and go around the board and knock somebody off, it was like, yeah. But with that being said, um, dad always wanted us, all of us, to not only be competitive, but be the best that we could be, whatever that was, be the best. Mom was the nurturer, you know, so after a game, come home, she was like, normally dad went with me to my game, mom with Reggie, and I always felt that I got, I got, I got cheated on that deal. Yeah, right. Oh, it's okay. Probably dad didn't say, oh, it's okay. You, you only, you only scored 30 points. It, he's like, oh, I did this. And then, you know, something would happen where I may have scored a little more than Reggie. But the good thing is mom would always come in and she was the nurturer and she was the one that said, I'm just proud of you guys. I could care less what you do on or off the court. Where did it come? You're both, you're so well-spoken, you're educated, you're so well-rounded, yet neither of you lost compassion or empathy. I mean, what, what do you think it was in, in the middle of all that competitiveness that you, you all maintained your humanity? That was mom. That was mom. And mom being a nurse and next to my junior high school was um, a nursing home, which my mom worked at. So she would work with people who couldn't really take care of themselves. And to go over there and wait for her to take me home, just watching her care and the people who had dementia always remembered her name, always remembered her name. And that's, that's where, you know, that part of, of all of us was you, you just do the right thing. May not be your best day, but do your right thing. Do the right thing. Put your best foot forward. And that came from my mom. Oh, that is, I can see it and I can feel it when you say that. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Is, um, you know, it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and I couldn't think of someone earlier who was a true beneficiary. You know, you were almost like the uh, lab test, the litmus test for where Title IX could be. So you had to have been one of the first scholarships for basketball at SC. Is, is that correct? I was actually no, because we had the McGee twins, Pam oh, Paul right. McGee. But you played with them. I mean, they weren't that much ahead. Exactly. But before me, there was Nancy Lieberman and there was Ann Myers. I knew like early on that I could get a scholarship. There's, there's no way that my family could afford it at USC. None whatsoever. So I knew there was a good chance, a great chance. Um, and I had over 200 schools recruiting me. And they're like, well, you know, we're going to take care of your scholarship and this and that. And so I knew that door was wide open, but having, and this is the wonderful thing is like the more I study and understand title nine, our younger generation, these young ladies need to know what's ahead of them and what they've been afforded. 
It's definitely people like Donna Devarona. She walked those halls of Congress for 50 years. Right. Because I I march myself. Uh, I'm a product of the women's movement, but I marched for Title IX in Washington in the late 70s because people challenged What was that like for you? What was that like for you? Honestly, seriously, I'm more interested in that. What was like, what was that like for you? Thank you for asking. It was, um, I was always the first, first woman to cover the NFL. So everything was, um, you know, kind of one hand tied behind your back. They had no provisions for equal access, no locker room. And there was always, um, you know, well, you had to prove yourself your whole life too. But I remember going down in 1979 because it wasn't going to affect me. I was out of college, but I know that all these women now who play at so many levels, it really, they are the babies of Title IX. And it because people protected it, it was challenged all the time. The big universities didn't, they thought it was going to affect the football revenue. So it was challenged constantly. But you, um, yeah, maybe you didn't know why that was your opportunity then, but that was mm-hmm. the reason. It was the Title IX was enacted 10 years before uh, you went and, uh, or not that many. When were you a freshman? 82? 82. 82. Okay. So that was only, it was enacted 10 years before, 72. So um, all the schools, uh, it was federal legislation that colleges had to provide equal opportunity for the women. Right. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So now you go off and, but tell me, I mean, was there no such thing as marketing the women's basketball or because you were so talented um, there, there was some. Leslie, I was on a talented team. And, you know, SC was known for what? The football team. The glamour sport at the glamour school. Exactly. Exactly. So now rolls in a cocky team that thinks, you know, we're bigger than life. And the two things the two things that kept us relevant was winning two national championships. Had we not won two national championships, we couldn't have had the voices that we had. And that is like winning. When people say winning silences everyone, the critics and everybody, absolutely. And we did that. In Los Angeles, next to our big brothers, the Lakers, are you kidding me? Are you are you kidding oh, me? God, I remember seeing some of those games. You, but you were just a joy, which you you know you were on the court. You are in life. But tell me about going to SC then. You know, I mean, it was the school of not only it was the glamour position at the glamour school in the glamour sport. It was OJ. It was Marcus. Your time, I think, was like Rodney Pete, maybe or Sean Salisbury. But what is John it like? Robinson, the yes, whole yes, yeah. Well, What's it like to go around campus and be one of those people who is bringing glory to a sport and the school? When I once I got there and you kind of look at our roster, I'm like, oh my goodness, oh we could be good, <laughs> we could be good, mm-hmm. and we could do something here. And literally, our practices were tougher than any game I've ever been involved with. Tough. It was. I mean, where. You're going hand on hand. So I got 6'3, 6'3, the McGee's, Cynthia Cooper. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? And Cynthia Cooper is coming off the bench. Right. So right. we were we were deep. But was it walking around campus? People knew who you were, and this is 
hey, come to a game? It wasn't. We didn't have to hype ourselves because people people knew. And I believe at the time, um, our PR person was Elise Kim. And Elise could sit up there and like highlight an ant farm and have people come in and look at the ant farm. She was that good, but she knew she had a product that, you know, and when you have professional athletes wanting to watch, watch our games, come to our games from the Lakers to the Clippers, it was huge. Did you ever lament, Cheryl, that um, clearly you would have been a star in the WNBA and the leagues up till then just really hadn't caught on and you had injuries, but were you ever wistful about it? No, not not at all. I think there is a a time and a moment for everyone. And I lived and played and had a great life from an athlete standpoint. Um, and I can't get into oh I wish <laughs> that's just my mom. My mom never allowed us to do I wish. I love that. I always tell people I was just as happy covering the final four for the Boston Globe, making 12,000 as doing 25 of them for CBS at considerably, you know, a greater salary because I just loved, I, I loved the job. But, you know, didn't you, were you recruited by the USBL? Was that a possibility at one time? No, no, no not, not at the all. Men's, not, yeah. no, that, okay. that was, that was never an option because, um, after my senior year, I blew up my knee. Right. And basketball-wise, that was a wrap. So I decided to follow in your footsteps and try to be the best like broadcaster I could possibly be. You were great. Stop there for a minute, and then we'll go back. Tell me what you're seeing in the NBA right now, these playoffs. Who do you like? What do you see? I think it's up for grabs. I, I truly, truly do. Um, I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm a Giannis fan. I just whew, absolutely love him. Um, they were hurt without Middleton, don't you think? Not oh, having Middleton, Chris Middleton. No, no, no. He's the glue. Right, right. He's the glue. No, no. He's the anchor where everybody gravitates around him. Like he's the one that's steady. And you have to have that, that steady person. And he's definitely that. Um, but it's really, it's really up for grabs. And I'm excited about that. I was surprised uh, Phoenix had such a great record, you know, all year. And I don't know what the heck happened there in game seven, but it's, it's the season, the season. Happens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> did you ever, you might've been somebody who did this. You know how there's now the look in the NBA that after they're taking trash from the bench, that the player like Luca hits a shot and then he stares at the bench. Yeah. I just, was that your style or never? Well, well, it wasn't my style. Reggie style? Yes. Reggie <laughs> style, definitely. The look. <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not the look. It's mugging. It's mugging. And that's, you know, I, look, if you hit a, a, like a game winner or you take your, you know, you hit the shot that takes your team ahead, I, I get that where I'm like, you know, you're like, oh, huh. But not every time. Right. Not off of a scored layup. Really? That's so true. <laughs> With a mugging. Seriously. Right. And all this, you know, the hands and all this kind of you know, threes and 
We know you just made a three. I can count. Is Steph breathtaking to you and you you just can't believe it? Or do you see if somebody were to just practice that 10,000 hours, as Malcolm Gladwell said, they could do it? His work ethic is remarkable. It's not only breathtaking, it's not the three-point shot that I, I don't want people to fall in love with because most people want to come down and jack a shot, okay? Whether you're open or not doesn't mean, but the fact that he will either do a step back, come back, make that extra pass. See, people don't realize he's a complete player, an absolute complete player. Now, is it might short and lacking defensively? <laughs> yeah, no question about that. If there is a fault in this game defensively, he might be at times a liability. But his work ethic, and that's what people don't understand. Just because, just because I may go out and shoot a hundred shots, doesn't mean when I go to my game, I'm going to be stepped. It doesn't work like that. It's it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of putting in those workouts. The '84, uh, I was privileged to be on all the Celtic Laker broadcasts of that fabulous era. So, who were the Lakers that for you? growing up, you identified with? Magic Johnson, personality, and no one realized how hard he worked on this game. And he had everything, really. A rookie with the baby hook. I mean, come on. Come on, come on. Um, I love, I love Kareem because sometimes he couldn't get out of his own mind because he really outthink the game. Michael Cooper, because he just was Michael Cooper. Could you imitate any of that, the Cooper loop? I've, I've done a few Cooper loops. <laughs> but the person I, the person I really, I really admired, and not to put them, I, I don't want to go one to right. zero or anything else, Kurt Rambis. Oh, God. Sleeves and went to work. Same thing with Danny Ainge. Whoa, Danny Ainge. Coast to coast. Coast to coast. <laughs> yeah. Parrot. I mean, if you, you just look at the dynamics of how about team, oh my gosh. You know what's interesting is that series, uh, game three, was when um, Bird in 1984, yeah, when yes. Bird said, we're playing like sissies, right? Lost in the forum. And that right. the next game, is where Mikhail clotheslined Rambus. And it was just so out of character for him, you know? And part of it was because Ainge was sick of taking all the criticism because, you know, he was a pest defensively. He just wouldn't leave you alone, talked. Yeah. And so and he, he had a yappity. He yes. had a yappity. Come on. Yes. And um, Ainge said, why am I the one always taking it? Go out there, somebody else. Yes, Ooh. we're playing like sissies. So, but anyway, this is something to me how the game has changed. Do you know? That Mikhail was not uh, suspended for a month or, or whatever, go away, don't come back again. It was a two-shot foul. <laughs> okay, Leslie, you know this better than me. Back in the day, you could, you could unless somebody's eyeball fell out of their head. <laughs> right. <laughs> no foul. Play on. <laughs> they played on. Keep them moving. No, today you can't, you can't either. Put your hands on the whole Jordan rules, which I think diminished the game. 
But even Jordan will tell you, you know, he used to get knocked on his rear end until he was like, okay, I need to lock myself in the weight room. I'm going to make sure everybody else is in the weight room. You know, I need backup. So that's how the game evolved. Now you can't touch anybody. You can't even look at somebody sideways without getting <laughs> teed up. Really? Did you uh, did you enjoy you coached the couple schools your own for for a while? Did you love coaching, or were you, you know, one of those sometimes great great players, or like particularly in baseball, the greatest players can't understand why a guy can't hit the curve, you know? So uh, tell me about coaching for you. Hated it. <laughs> well, there your timing is perfect. <laughs> there you go. I did not know that. <laughs> absolutely hated it because unless you're willing to be honest with yourself and I wasn't at the time I can't coach these kids and I certainly don't want to babysit these kids and I certainly don't want to recruit 99% of these of these players today because and this is my opinion I may be wrong I think I think Today's players have an overinflated opinion about themselves and where their game is at and how much they're willing to like give. Now, obviously, the higher the level of players, but you can't teach someone to want the game. If I if I want it more than my players, something's wrong with this equation. You know how they always say you can't coach height? You also can't coach heart. I'm so glad you have your show. <laughs> you need to say that. You you need to say that. You know that more than anyone else. You've seen from A to Z with athletes. So you know, you can see it. You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their eyes. And thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. No, it's uh, when you see the WNBA, are you um, happy for their opportunities and what do you think it needs? What is missing in the WNBA or is nothing missing? I don't, I don't think anything is, is missing except for maybe better um, exposure. Um, I'm happy for the women, you know, that they have their league, but the fact um, just name one NBA player, top NBA, uh, NBA player that has to go overseas to supplement their income. Correct. And but their answer to that. And so um, coach me on this. Their answer to that is the marketplace sets itself. You know, the ratings are this and therefore players get paid this. Well, until the, uh, until, until executives and um, the commissioner goes overseas to commission <laughs> to supplement her income. Shut it. That's a great, great point. That's a great point because I was going to say networks are not nonprofit. You know, we're not PBS. And so, but you're right. If a commissioner, uh, the jobs are right to, to do the very, uh, do you, do you, are you so scared for Brittany Griner? Terrified. I'm not afraid. I'm terrified. I'm terrified. Because if that would have been uh, Kevin Durant, do you think he would still? He would still be in prison. Are you kidding me? No, explain that to me. But explain that to me, because I think it's Putin's collateral and Kevin Durant would be greater collateral upon. 
a bargaining chip. But the NBA would have never allowed Kevin Durant to be in that situation at all. And the one thing that I'm trying not to do is until I know 100% of what exactly was it, was a cannabis, was a cannabis oil. Um, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, what she's played for Russia for how many years? She's a star. And all of a sudden, she's the one that gets pinched? Come on. Who are your kind of um, people that you admired outside of sports growing up? Maya Angelou. Oh, yeah. Still I rise. Yeah. That's, oh, see, now you're going to make me cry. But. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. Or just the, the title of that book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Oh, wow. I yep. mean, yep. you know what? You're just delightful and you make people better. You made me better just by talking to me today. First of all, all right, let me, let me say one quick thing. You were the benchmark for all of us growing up who started in broadcasting. Like you set the standard and will continue to always set the standard. And thank you so much because there's not a lot of women who are epic and iconic that were willing to have a simple conversation with a young budding reporter. And you always took the time to do that. And that was my conversation with Cheryl Miller. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.